This is an audio presentation of God First Church, Cheltenham, England. A community of Jesus followers, worshipping God first, proclaiming God first, and together living God first lives. For more information, visit our website at godfirst.org.uk. Okay, so we're going to hit this series, we're in part three, we're in part three, we pick up where we were last week, so if you haven't picked, but listened to the podcast or listened to the series, please, please do that, but you know, it, I'd love you to do that, but we finished last week with these words from Jesus, uh, as we talked about kind of the, the fragile uh, gospel of self, we, Jesus' words in Matthew 7, 13, enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction and many enter through it. But small is the gate, and narrow is the way that leads to life, and only a few find it. And then uh, John Mark Homer, who's uh, a leader of a church in Portland, Oregon, he said this about that, uh, that phrase in, in the context of what we're talking about. There's a very specific way to live as an apprentice of Jesus. It's not just a broad way, which is do whatever you want, be true to yourself, follow your desire. It's a specific, narrow way of Jesus. The disciples live that lead uh, the, the, the narrow way of Jesus. That disciples live that leads to life, that in the end results results in the life of the kingdom. It's a narrow way of life, a way of forgiveness, a way of peace that's not anxious but rests in God's presence, a way that's not lustful, that's not angry, a way of service, sacrifice, and generosity, a way of life that's fully present a life together in community. And uh, what I want to do this, this week is to become much more practical and give you four ways that we're going to walk that life. I, I've got one that I'm going to hold over for a couple of weeks, but uh, we're going to pull it out of uh, Daniel chapter 3. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar has uh, set up this statue that we talked about last week, has set up this statue, and um, uh, we find uh, what happens when uh, the exiles or the people of God uh, respond. So Daniel 3, I think we're starting at verse 13, 14. Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the image of gold that I've set up? Now, when you hear the sound of horn and all kinds of music, if, you're re- if you are ready to fall down and worship the image I made, very good. But if you do not worship it, you'll be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace. Then what God will be able to rescue from my hand? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to him, King Nebuchadnezzar, these are fabulous words, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we're thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it. And he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we, will, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you've set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar was furious with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and his attitude was changed. He ordered the furnace heated seven times hotter than usual and commanded some of the strongest soldiers in his army to tie them up and throw them into the blazing furnace. So these men, wearing their robes and trousers and turbans and other clothes, were thrown, or were bound and thrown into the blazing furnace. The king's command was so urgent and the furnace was so hot that the flames of the fire killed the soldiers who took up these three men, firmly tied them as they fell into the furnace. Then 
King Nebuchadnezzar leapt to his feet in amazement and asked his advisors, were there three men who were tied up and thrown into the fire? They replied, certainly, your majesty. Then he said, look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed, and the fourth looks like a son of the gods. Nebuchadnezzar then approached the opening of the blazing furnace and shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out, come here. So Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego came out of the fire, and the royal advisors crowded around them. They saw that the fire had not harmed their bodies, not a hair of their head was singed, their robes were not skirts, and there's no smell of fire on them. The Nebuchadnezzar said, Praise the God of Meshach, uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who sent his angel and rescued his servants. They trusted him and, he, and defied the king's command and were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any other god except their god, for no other god can serve in this way. Brilliant story. We probably, if you've been around church or Sunday school, you might know it. Uh, if you haven't, first time, but it's basically persecution. Uh, I'm going to talk a little bit in a few weeks' time about uh, how do we, uh, when persecution happens, persecution and, and tragedy happens, when, when culture presses in, how do we respond? But, but I just want to talk about resilience today. So I want to talk about resilient disciples. Um, we know the men, names of these men not because they were fragile but because they were resilient in the face of pressure to conform. And, and, and that's really important because, you know, it's actually those people that, that stand against the culture often are the ones that are remembered. It's the ones who, who change the culture, who, who, you know, who, who get into politics and make a difference whose names are remembered. Those of us that duck our heads are not often the names that are remembered. And Daniel and his peers, and his peers, instead of bowing down to the culture of Babylon, as we've said before, waited on God and listened to his voice and became channels of his power. And as a result, they spoke these incredible, powerful words. I highlighted them when I was reading. And I've got no emotional grid for this. I've got no emotional grid for this. How, do you re- how would you react if you're going to be killed? I mean, it does happen. You know, occasionally you find kind of, I was reading about some, some guys in, in northern Somalia, uh, Al-Shabaab uh, uh, Muslims came in and said to these Christians, if you don't say uh, the, the, you know, the Muslim prayer, there's no God but Allah, etc., um, then we'll cut your head off. And some prayed the prayer and got back in the bus, and some didn't and had their heads cut off. This might feel like it's thousands of years ago, but it is in our world. It's not in this world, but it is in our world. And how do you cope with it? How would you cope with it? I feel like, how would I have a faith that's robust enough to say, the God we serve is able to deliver me, and if he does not, I still won't serve your God. (laughs) I mean, incredible, really incredible. My, um, our faith is usually, if I have faith in, I'll have faith in Jesus if he saves me from the fire. I'll have faith in Jesus if he gives me a good life. I'll have faith in Jesus if he does heal my sickness or does sort out my cancer or does he make my life better, then I'll have faith in him. These guys are saying, no, I'm going to faith in him. If God blesses me, great. And if he doesn't bless me, I'm still having faith in God. It's, it's remarkable. Their faith is remarkable. But throughout the story of Daniel, we read something that says why these men were like that. Because actually, heroes are not born. They're made, they're shaped. 
And these men have been shaped by some habits and some practices of the narrow way, as it were, that have made them resilient. And you might think, I know these practices. Because you do. Because when you first become a Christian, if you are a Christian, they, people tell you to do this. But I want to try and pull out four practices, four habits uh, that will make you so that you can cope and, uh, in, in a culture that wants to throw you in the furnace, throw you in the lion's den. I mean, Daniel's thrown in the lion's den because he prays. Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego are thrown in the fiery furnace because they're worshippers of God. It's their practices that, that make them resilient. So I've got four, but I'm going to pray first. Father, I just pray in this cultural moment where it doesn't feel like uh, we're facing uh, persecution and martyrdom, although that has been a pattern for your church. Lord, there's a subtle enemy that wants us to bow down. There's a subtle gospel, as Roger was saying, that wants us to mix the gospel of self and the gospel of comfort with the gospel of Jesus. And Lord, I pray you'd help us to live wisely and robustly in this cultural moment. I pray, I, I pray for myself deeply. I pray for these dear people in Jesus' name. Amen. So the first practice then is in a complex and seductive age, study truth and develop cultural discernment. Imagine if you're a soldier on the battlefield. I mean, uh, I think uh, Paul says to Timothy, soldiers on the battlefield, good soldiers don't get involved in civilian affairs. But imagine you've got yourself out of civilian affairs and you're on the battlefield. If you don't know your own, en- your own tactics and the enemy's tactics, if you've got no clue, you're nodding, I think you haven't been on the battlefield, but he's been in the army, uh, in, the, in the Air Force, and you don't know the voice of your commanding officer, you're an incredibly soft target. If you're the lone soldier... You're a very soft target. If you don't know the voice of the commander, if you don't know he says, this is the objective and this is where we're going, you're a very soft target. And you might not realize it, that we're in a cultural battle. If you haven't met anything from the last few weeks, it's that we're in a cultural battle. And our friends and ourselves and our children will be casualties if we're not disciplined and focused on Jesus, the voice of the commander. You will lose your kids. If you've got kids, you'll lose your friends, you might lose your wife, your, your husband, you might even lose your own faith. If you don't realize you're in a battle and you need to man up or woman up. <laughs> the thing is about this battle though, it is not out there and obvious. It's here and in your pocket. It's here and in your pocket. The secular world is in your pocket. It's a house-to-house fight, but it's a secular world in your pocket. The bridgehead is already in your life. The bridgehead of this culture is already in your pocket. It's already telling you what to do. The, uh, The screens demand our attention and screens decide. We must be able to discern the lies that come to us through our screens. Otherwise, you're just going to be infiltrated and you're just going to go down. You know, the the guys in Babylon, we said that the first week, they didn't eat the meat. They understood that, yes, we're going to live in Babylon, we're going to be engaged in Babylon, we're going to pray for Babylon, but we're not going to become part of Babylon, we're not going to be infiltrated. And it's almost like eating the meat is like on your phone for us. We mustn't swallow down the culture. We've got to have our radar, our biblical radar on. And I've said this a lot, to discern the seemingly unstoppable cultural narrative of this false gospel of self. We've got to spot 
this lie that we, if you release from binding commitments and responsibilities and restrictive traditions and external authority, then the individual self is free to create your own identity to live as you prove. And then if that happens, we'll all arrive at this personal utopia of happiness. That's the lie. Now, it's interesting, I wasn't spotting it. I wasn't spotting it, as I said before, until I did this series on, on divine sex, I wasn't spotting it. But then I read a book uh, about people's uh, sexual identity and how that's shaped by their personal autonomy and their desire for pleasure, and I thought I saw it. And now I'm seeing it everywhere. So I've, I've got a new car. If you hadn't heard, I've got a new car. <laughs> I've got a new car, and I'm suddenly seeing my version of the car everywhere. I'd never even noticed that car before. You know, you've heard of it, haven't you? New car syndrome. I mean, I think it's got a fancy word. What's it called? Scotoma. Okay, so you just suddenly, you see it everywhere. And I think once you start to look for this gospel of self, this kind of radical individual, you're going to, individualism, you're going to see it everywhere. In fact, I'm getting quite boring because I think, there it is. Listening, there's a tweet, there it is. On the news, there it is. On the Netflix, there it is. But how do you spot it? I'm told that bank tellers who handle banknotes, we don't use money these days, I mean, what is cash these days? Oh, it's on your phone, isn't it? Oh, that's another story. Um, but we know the counterfeit money by how? Handling the real money. Handle the real money. I need a Bible to waggle around. We've got to handle the real money. It's got to be, you know, it might be an old, they don't make them in plastic these days, and you've got to handle the real money. In fact, my, my real money, my on my phone, which is always dangerous, because you think, am I going to go to Twitter or am I going to read my Bible? But we've got to handle the real money. And then when you handle the real gospel, you can spot the fakes. But the challenges, and, 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 and David um, uh, Kinderman, in a book, I think, I just want to, there. So I've mentioned Disappearing Church, great book. I mentioned that podcast, this cultural moment. This book is published next week. I'm so ahead of the curve. I'm reading books that haven't been published. It's everywhere. But he says this, uh, uh, David Kinderman says this, the typical Christian spends nearly 20 times more hours using screen-driven media than taking in spiritual content. Let me just say that again. The typical Christian spends nearly 20 times more hours using screen-driven media than taking in spiritual content. People are looking for their devices to make sense of the world around them. This is particularly your kids, but it's probably you. They're using the screens in their pockets as their counsellors, their entertainers, their instructors, and even their sex educators. Why make the effort to talk about the big issues when you can privately ask the smartphone in your hand? It's true, eh? Siri what? Google what? Alexa what? I saw this in Twitter this week, and I, tweet, and I liked it. I was on Twitter, you see, there I go. Discerning, though, I was discerned what was good, I thought. <laughs> if Jesus spent eight hours a day, every day, for three years with his disciples, he'd have spent over 8,000 hours with them. And after all that time, they still had significant gaps. Yet we have this Christian culture that thinks an hour a week, once a month, on a Sunday morning is going to transform us. You know, I, I, I used to get sad... Because I thought, oh, big numbers is like going to make me feel, it's going to build myself and make me feel great. But now I feel sad when people don't come because they think, you guys, you've got to soak your mind in the real thing. You've got to handle the real dolly. You've got to swim in the real water of the gospel. Otherwise, you're just going to fall for anything. Say amen. amen. 
That's true. So, we need, so that's our first practice. Let's spot what's happening. Let's study the real dollar so that we can spot the fake when it's there. And we can say to our kids when they come home from sixth form party or their first year students, have you noticed? Why is that happening? Why is it? In your workplace, you will see it everywhere. Scotoma. New car syndrome for the rest of us. You're going to see this everywhere, but you've got to spot it because it will take you down if you don't. Amen? So that's practice number one. Practice number two. In an individualistic and atomized world, forge meaningful gospel community. You say, I know this. You're saying, read your Bible. Be in a community. Isn't this what we do? I want you to see the urgency of it. Again, uh, David Kinderman in his book that's not yet published says this. It's probably no surprise that people in digital Babylon, digital Babylon means the Babylon in your phone, the cultural Babylon, the digital world. That, that, that You don't have to be in Babylon. Babylon's in your house, yeah? You've got that. So digital Babylon have become more and more isolated. This is from the States, this book. It's, uh, the, the, it was sponsored by Barner, who uh, a polling organization, research organization. He says, today, an epidemic of loneliness has impacted tens of millions of people. In the U.S., data shows that adults are twice as likely to say they're lonely compared to a decade ago. About one out of five Americans say they feel lonely. It's the same here, but just the Americans have got the wherewithal to do the research. Regardless of the hundreds of millions of smartphones we've bought, the apps we've loaded, the posts we've written and read, and the likes and retweets we've given and received, we feel lonelier than ever. If I said, hand up if you feel lonely, you wouldn't do it, would you? You wouldn't put your hand up because it's like, oh, you don't admit you're lonely. But it's true. Media has atomized us. Phones have separated us. You know, put down, <laughs> how many times does Naomi have to say to me at the table, put your phone down. It's terrible, isn't it? I'm, I'm 60, I'm supposed to have learned this. It's not our kids, it's like me, put your phone down. But yet we can... Look at our week and look at our time and say, you know, just, who are my friends? Why are we increasingly lonely? Why are we separated into our own little bubbles, our own atom-sized bubbles? The answer is our culture is drowning in choice freedom, the autonomy of the self, to do what we want, when we want, without reference to anyone but ourselves. What's happened is this culture of self that says, I can do what I want, when I want, without reference to anyone else, has meant that we're lonely. Let me pick it out for you. So Mark says in the podcast that I've quoted many times, he says, in, this cultural, in the cultural system we inhabit, we're drowning in choice freedom, but thirsting for relationships and meaning. In other words, we're overwhelmed. People think the answer, culture thinks the answer is to give you more choices. And if you, you, so we buy in, we think, if I've got more money, I'll have more choices. If I exercise more choices and have more fun and more pleasure, then I'll be happy. And we're over, we're drowning in choice freedom. We suffer from choice anxiety. We go to the, sh we go to the shops and there's so many different types of tea. We think, I don't know what tea to drink. You know, we, there's so much choice out there. But the thing is, we love choice, actually. So I don't know if anybody's like been buying a new car or you've been buying a, a, buying a new house or a product or you're searching for a phone. It's quite nice, isn't it, looking at the choices. You know, you kind of do your research and look at the choices. 
But then choice has to become what? You have to exercise choice and it becomes what? Decision or commitment. So it's like if you're dating and you think, oh, there's hundreds of brilliant guys in the world. There's loads of lovely women in the world. And you think, I, I, could, I could be with that person or that person or that person or that person or that person. But the moment comes when you have to say, I do. And then commitment kicks in, yeah? And we struggle with that. Don't we struggle with that in our culture? And when we've made the choice, think, oh, I've married the wrong person. You know, it's the wrong... I'm not saying this. I'm just saying this hypothetically. I'm just saying that you think that. I don't think that Naomi might think that. You know, you think, I've married the wrong person. I've made the choice, and the choice is wrong. What I need is another choice. Because we struggle. We're commitment-phobic. And commitment-phobia means that we just don't commit to community. Mark says again, people in the West have more leisure time and more disposable income, industries, income. So industries of choice, and he lists them, this is an edit of a longer list, of style, design, tech, media, lifestyle, health and experience are booming. We live in this beautiful world of, you know, nice coffee and brilliant phones and lovely design and Scandinavian coffee pods and, you know, lovely holidays you can go. We live in this kind of world where if you, you can have, and, and, and nobody's saying that's wrong. However, the community institutions in the West are unwinding, he says. We're less and less inclined to spend our time and money on volunteering activities that build community cohesion. Actually, if you do a research on what keeps nations in the West organised, it's not just government and individuals. Or even, you know, as one Prime Minister said, there's no such thing as, as society, it's just individuals. It's actually those, those, those institutions of community cohesion. It's those institutions like church and social clubs and kind of, uh, you know, meals on wheels and food banks. Those things, of, those institutions of social cohesion keep communities together. And one of the problems, if you look in less developed countries, is that they lack those institutions. Yes, they've got government and individuals, but they lack those institutions. And what's happening in the West, uh, uh, people are saying, is that, that, that community institutions are unwinding. And churches are unwinding. True community requires commitment. I'll say it again. True community requires commitment. I've said this before. We have to empty our overflowing reservoir of choice freedom to be in community with others. The thing is, we can view community as a commodity that's there when we want it. Just like any other experience. I will go to my group. This is not a hammer-on group. I'm speaking to myself. I'll go to my group or my church or my community involvement or my social action project. I'll go when I want, but it'll always be there for me when I want to consume what it gives me. But the reality is, it's not going to be there unless somebody says, I commit. If you text and say, sorry, I can't make it tonight, what you're saying is, I'm expecting someone else to commit, but I'm not going to commit. I'll take it, I'll leave it. But somebody's got to say, I commit, I take responsibility, I lead. We have not got enough small group leaders in this church because it costs you time and energy. I'm going to pick that up in a few weeks and you probably think I'm going to keep my head down. But why don't people want to lead? Because it costs you. You might think, Howard, it's easy for you, you get paid for it. It still costs. Leadership always costs. 
It costs in the workplace. It costs in, the, it costs in families. It costs in community. Leadership costs. It costs you. Community building costs you. Say amen. amen. Why does community matter? Because God dwelt in community. You've heard us say this a thousand times. I've heard Tom Bradley preach a, Bradbury preach a great sermon on it. God has dwelt for eternity in loving community, Father and Son and Spirit. Jesus became man, died on the cross, separated by our sins from his Father. Why was he separated? Why was he atomized, as it were, in his humanity, separated from, not in his divinity, in case you're a theological student, but in his humanity, why was he separated from his Father? Because he wanted to invite us in to community. He wanted to invite us into the life of the Trinity. This is a quote from our membership, Vision and Values, Get Connected course. To become a Christian is to be united with Jesus. It's not that I belong to God and then make a decision to join a local church. Being united with Jesus means I am in Christ. We'll preach about that next week when we do baptism. And with those united with him. This is my identity. This is our identity. It means being a Christian is a community reality. It's a community reality. It's not individual. It's not your little faith in your little room. It's expressed in community. And it costs us to do that. I want to say that being in Christian community is much a spiritual discipline as reading your Bible and praying. I'll say that again. Being in Christian community is as much a spiritual discipline as reading your Bible and praying. It's called fellowship. Old school language. But it says it matters. And I'm, it doesn't matter for bombs on seats. It matters because we're in a battle and we need to be together in the unit, which leads to our third practice. So, third one. So, tracking so far. We've got to be in community. We've got to read our Bibles. I thought, I know this. To combat self-centered autonomy, embrace deliberately intrusive discipleship. Let me say that again. To combat self-centered autonomy, embrace deliberately intrusive discipleship. Okay, that's what we're signing for. We live in this society of self-realization, don't you? Where authority was used to be external... And we've moved it inside. I, I've used this as a... So remember I showed this on, on when we did divine, divine Sex, talked about that. That, that in the past, in the, what's called the Pre-Reformation or the Enlightenment, cultural authority in the church or the state or the family was huge and individual authority was small. Now I'm not saying that was right or wrong. You know, Augustine did some crazy things in the name of the church. Crazy things have been done in the name of the church. But, but, but if the authority said jump, you said hi, hi. And now what's happened is this, remember that we did that, that external authorities become so small and we've become huge. It's really countercultural to be a disciple of Jesus. Because being a disciple of Jesus, where does the autonomy lie? There's a little clue coming. Amen. That's where the authority lies. So it's really countercultural. And we can mess it up. We can feel, well, it's like back where we were. It's like the church telling me what to do and this institution telling me to be here and do that and serve and give my money and blah. But ultimately, what we're trying to say is let's be disciples of Jesus. The enthroning of self as the greatest authority has relegated God to the role of servant to the personal world. The gospel of Jesus has been displaced as the foundation for how we think and it's been supplanted by personal experience, desire and preference. We need to be disciples of Jesus. We need to be disciples of Jesus. 
I've used this quote before from a guy called Paul Tripp. It says this, I've come to understand, and I'm saying this for me. If you don't think it's for you, then fine, but I am saying this for me. I've come to understand that I need others in my life. I know now I need to commit myself to living in intentionally intrusive, Christ-centered, grace-driven, redemptive community. I know now my job is to seek this community out, to invite people to interrupt my private internal conversation and say to me, say things to me that I could not or would not say to myself. I've realized how much I need warning, encouragement, rebuke, correction, grace and love. I see myself connected to others, not by my own choice, but by the wise design of the one who is the head of the body, the Lord Jesus. That's brilliant, isn't it? If you're going to get it done, you've got to be with other people. You've got to let somebody in. And if you're part of this church, somebody from this church probably. You know, you can be pastored by some podcast from elsewhere. I'm glad nine people have listened to it. If thousands will listen to it, I'd be worried. Why don't they listen to their own pastor and their own church? But in this church, we're saying, we want to be intrusive in your life. And you think, whew. I mean, I had a lady come and visit and say, said to, I've heard about God first. They're quite, um, don't they're busybody, kind of quite heavy in your life. And then I preached on Matthew 18 <laughs> about like, you know, if your brother sins against you, go and show them. And I, I don't want us to be heavy and controlling or nasty about this, but we need people in our lives. You know, if, if, if you're married and you don't let your partner, your husband, your wife into your life, you, you're in danger. You know, I, I'm not going to say any more because it might leave me exposed, but we need people. We need people to say, I need people to say, why do I do that? Or why am I like that? And in this, in this kind of society of autonomy and personal will, I need to surrender and say, I want to be a disciple. Amen? Last one. To form resilient identity, experience the intimacy with Jesus. You've got to be with him. The key to the practice of resilient discipleship, says David Kinderman, in Digital Babylon, is clearing the clutter of life to experience intimacy with Jesus. The problem is we clear the clutter of church. I think that's the thing that's getting in the way. But it's actually the clutter of life that is in the way of intimacy with Jesus. And even as I was preparing this and, and thinking about this, I'm just feeling, Lord, I just feel like I need to just slow and know you. You know, it's great when Graham sang that song and it's just, let your grace pour over me. You know, it feels like it's been too long since I felt like, God, I just come and soak me by your spirit again. That changes my will and changes my heart and changes my, my way of thinking. It was the daily practices, as I said earlier, of prayer and worship that produced in Daniel, Meshach and Shadrach the faithful resilience in the face of cultural cohesion. As I've said before, these guys weren't heroes finding the hero within inside themselves. No, they were resilient disciples of Jesus and their daily habits shaped them. And they were not fragile when the moment came. The moment might come in lots of different forms for you. It might come in a form of temptation that's subtle and you don't even notice. 
It might come in a form of a temptation that's habitual and obvious and you fall for it again and again. It might come to us, and I'll talk about this in a couple of weeks, it might come to us in a sense where our cosy western bubble gets burst by rising sea levels or crime or riots on the streets or war and things that we've not experienced for 50 odd years, they might come. But when the moment came, their strength did not come from within themselves, but from an intimate relationship with God. And I, I wrote this this morning, just add it, add it to my slides. Jesus was with them in the fire because daily they were with him in prayer. You might say, where's God in the fire? It's not that he rewards you in prayer, but if you know him and you're intimate with him, you're close to him, he's going to be with you. And that doesn't mean your bank account's going to be full and you're never going to be sick. It might be in the fire, but he's going to be with you. We need to be with him day to day. So when the fire comes, he's going to be with us. Yes? I found this, this verse uh, in Daniel 11. We're not going to read Daniel 11 in this series, but, but he's talking. It's a big prophetic moment. And he says this, talking about enemy tactics. Remember we mentioned that at the beginning. With flattery, he's talking about the enemy. Flattery, he, or uh, the accuser, or the devil, or Satan, will corrupt with flattery... He will corrupt those people who abandon God. But the people who know their God will be strong and do exploits. So we've got on one side, whose voice are you listening to? This is the question, nearly finishing here. One, who's, whose voice are you listening to? Because the enemy's going to flatter you, and it, that he's going to use that to corrupt you and warp you out of shape. And we've talked about this. If we're chasing external voices on social media or through our possessions or through bragging about our experiences or, or whatever, if we're like a balloon that's just looking to be puffed up with all those things, the reality is it's an incredibly vulnerable place to be. The fragile self is like a balloon that's puffed up or popped, as I said last week, with people's opinions. So much so that although we declare ourselves to be free, we follow the herd. We say, I'm free to be myself, but we dress the same and drink the, from the same places and have the same phones and have the same TVs and we have the same way. We're just the same. Because we, we, we listen always in our lives to the daily verdict of the court of other people's opinions. How do you respond when people say to you, you didn't do well? I mean... I don't need much encouragement, you know. If somebody comes to me and says, it wasn't very good, and you preached on Sunday, I, you know, my balloon, pop. How are you when somebody says you didn't do well or it wasn't good enough for you? How are you doing? Is it like the daily verdict sheet is coming back from the court and you think, how do people think I've done today? I'm so vulnerable. So vulnerable. Tim Keller, in his brilliant little book, which I forgot, I've got an example of a free copy. It's only two, only two ninety nine, but I was going to be really generous and give you a free copy, but I've forgot it. So if somebody comes up to me afterwards and said, "I like Tim Keller's book," I will give it to you next week. And if you're not here, I'll give it to someone else. Okay, Tim Keller, in his brilliant little book, great title, "The Freedom of Self Forgetfulness," said this, commenting on one Corinthians three and four. I love this; it's so powerful. I care very little if I'm judged by you or any human court. Indeed, I do not even judge myself. My conscience is clear. It's the Lord who justifies me. 
Tim Keller puts it like this so brilliantly. I do not care what you think of me. Say that to your neighbour. Say, I do not care what you think of me. <laughs> I don't even care what I think about myself. Say that to yourself. I don't even care what I think about myself. You've got these voices. You've got the outside voices telling you you're rubbish. You've got the inside voices telling you you're rubbish. Telling you they're amazing. Telling you you're rubbish. You've got these inside voices all the time. Tim Keller says, am I talking about high self-esteem? No. Am I talking about low self-esteem? No, it's not about self-esteem. Paul refuses to be drawn into that game. I have a low opinion of your opinion of me. But I have a low opinion of my opinion of me. In other words... It's, I'm not bothered what you think about me, and I'm not bothered what I think about me. Who are we bothered if we're going to be resilient disciples of Jesus? You know the answer. God's, God's. He says, because, and that's the secret. Paul has heard the ultimate verdict from God the Father. This is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. If you came with all your mess and failures and we sang in that song, your grace of God says, I love you, I'm for you. That is incredibly resilient. Parents, I was, uh, again, in child protection training, uh, and parents who say to their kids, you're rubbish, you wish you'd never been born. It's hugely destructive. Parents who say, I'm, I'm, I'm so for you, I'm with you, whatever happens, I'm there. They're strong and robust. We have got the God of heaven in our corner, yeah? Our heavenly Father, who's a rock and an overflowing fountain of love, and I need to hear his voice, and you need to hear his voice, not the fragile voice of others or myself, this is my beloved son. People like that die for their faith. People like that go to the fire and say, if you don't save me, I'm still committed to him. There's no stronger place. I want to go to that strong place. I want us to go to that strong place. We finish with breaking bread and we'll do that in a moment. I was thinking, what can I say? Let's give the right to the Hebrews the last word. The sense of know the culture, be in the community, live as a disciple, be strong in your intimate relationship with God. Let us run with perseverance, the race marked out for us. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. He's got it done. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, sat down, at the right hand of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners that you do not grow weary and lose heart. Why we break bread at the end is because we need to consider him because you're not going to find this in yourself. The ability to be a radical, resilient disciple is not resides within yourself. It's poured out by God's spirit, by God's word, by dwelling in community as a disciple by saying, this is my Father, and him speaking over you, you're my beloved one. I need to hear it, you need to hear it. If we want to make a difference, let's do these things. Amen? For more information, visit our website at godfirst.org.uk.